UX Podcast Episode 148. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pat Expo. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And we're balancing business, technology, and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. And today is a link show. A link show is where Per and I gather three articles or blog posts we've recently found and um, you know discuss them on the show. Sometimes they're articles we've loved. Sometimes we're a little critical. Either way, um, hopefully we'll enlighten you and, um, and make you think a little. The articles we've selected for today, uh, the first one out is uh, Decision Frames. How Cognitive Biases Affect UX Practitioners uh, by Catherine Whittington. Uh, that's on nelsonnormangroup.com. Uh, the second one is Agile Doesn't Have a Brain by Jeff Gothelf. Uh, that's published on Hacker Noon. Which, is, me- th- which is medium, basically. It is, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one out is The Complete Guide to Measuring Lostness uh, by Tomer Sharan uh, uh, on artplusmarketing.com. Which is also medium, yeah. kind of. <laughs> Everything is medium. Yeah, well, everybody's all this using your own domain with medium. Well, I um, realized, yeah. Yeah, which is the thing now. <laughs> if medium wasn't already the thing. So decision frames, how cognitive biases affect UX practitioners. Yep. Uh, Cognitive biases, of course, if you're not familiar with the term, is all about uh, confirmation bias. When you uh, uh, look for something that you think already is true, and uh, there are so many different biases. I think there's a an and there's, infog- there's a hundred like hundred twenty or something. Yeah, there's an infographic flying around the internet. Search for it; it's really cool. Uh, a nice Wikipedia page with them all, yeah. I think, as well. What I like about these articles uh, on the Nielsen Norman Group, where Catherine Whittington works, is that they actually have their own summary. So a two-line summary. Designers are, vul- are vulnerable to the same cognitive biases as users. The context in which you present a problem can bias your design choices. And it's always interesting to think that as, as a designer, you're all, always aware of all these things that can affect and persuade and influence users, but you think you yourself are immune to them, uh, yeah. which of course is not the case. You're, you're always uh, subject to these biases as a human being. Yeah. Uh, and and this, this article, is, it's quite a short one, and it makes a really good case uh, about how framing can, uh, can influence how people interpret like, usability test results. Oh, this is, with framing here, we mean how, you'd, how you present hmm. the results of your findings. Exactly. Um, oh, have a, have a uh, an, an sometimes known or sometimes unknown hmm. effect on the people you're presenting it to. Yeah. And her example in this article is, is really clear. Uh, she has two ways of framing the exact same results. Uh, four out of 20 users could not find the search function on the website, or 16 out of 20 users found the search function on the website. Exact same uh, results, just framed with different terminology, or in, in the other way around, uh, if you put it that way. So objectively, objectively, you should interpret these in the same way. Uh, but what happens is, and when they've tested this, is that actually user usability professionals, when they see these different uh, framings, they actually interpret them differently. Like four out of 20 users could not find the search function on the website. People interpret that as a bad result. And the other one, they primarily uh, interpret as a good result when they say 16 out of 20 users could find it. 
uh, which itself is very but worrying. It's extremely but it's not, worrying. But it's not at all surprising when you think about all the, the ways that we, we use persuasion and so on mm. to, to, like you say, to, to get people to or to guide people the way we want them when we're designing the actual products. Of course, it's not at all surprising that this is like this. Um, I mean, if you oh, if you present this to people, they are going to think of it like that because this is the framing. Now, you can't... I mean, we're just humans. So of course, this is going to happen. Like you said in the very beginning, we're not immune to It is going to happen. We are human. We just this need to be happen. more aware of it. And we need to have a technique for trying to avoid it as much as we possibly can, I think. Uh uh, but the, can you avoid it though? Well, that's what the tr the case she is trying to make here is. She has like a three step process here with things to think about when uh, when when trying to not fall into these traps. Uh, first one is resist the impulse to make a snap judgment. Of course, there is no right answer to how to respond to a to a figure like that. Four out of twenty users could do this or do that because there's so much information that you don't have. Uh, you need more information. So gather more context before making a decision is also one of, her po of the points she's making. So don't try mm -hmm. to interpret it straight away. <laughs> Sleep on it is what, <laughs> is what I usually say when people write blog posts. And also but experiment with time. different frames. I mean, if you have a result, try reframing that result in the opposite way, like they did here. So always try to reframe your result and see, okay, so if I say it like that, how does my snap judgment interpret the result and what should I do with it? The thing is, though, none of these three, none of these three bits of advice actually um, eliminate cognitive bias. Oh no, they just try well, to help you. They just through it. Well, they, they shuffle it around. I mean, you, you, arguably, by sleeping on it, you're just going to actually give chance for like more biases to bubble up, and you're just going <laughs> to present a different bias the next day. Because I mean, there are so many of them, and half of them are just not aware that's happening at any point. Where we're, you know. We're talking and dealing with it. And then, you know, more time means other people in the room are going to conjure up more biases of their own. To, then you have to defend or kind of counteract in the meeting when you're talking about it. It's, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly sure, difficult. Sure, but we're aware of all the different types of biases and we can always like pick oh, up. Oh, you're not. Yeah, we're not aware of them all the time. You're not we, exactly. We, no, but I'm what I'm saying is they're known. The, the ones we, of those hundred you just mentioned, yeah. they're known. We can have them like in a card set and we can pick them out and we can ask ourselves, am I influenced by this bias? And that helps you perhaps counter it in a better way than if you just wouldn't, ma wouldn't care and just, okay, I'm going to go with this because that's the f yeah. first feeling I had in my gut. Yeah. I, don't <clears> think we can, I, think, I, don't, I don't think we can kind of judge whether we are falling to our... I don't think we, we ourselves but that's are what very it, good they at judging. But that's what they did with this study. No, no, no. As in, yeah, but yeah. As in, if I'm the one presenting, if I'm the one doing the research, yeah. delivering the facts, I, I think it's, it's really difficult for you to do that without any cognitive biases. Uh, I'm not so convinced. I think uh, I've got 43 years of them, of these biases that I've been building up since I was born. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly difficult to separate them from you as a human being, because they are part of you as a human being. So what I, what I'm saying here maybe is that I mean, you've, isn't it a case of just running with it? And that we're, we're <laughs> no well, the same as that we're doing with the, with the websites. A lot mm -hmm. of the time, we're, you know, we're aware of it, but then you know, the way you frame this is. We don't have to be so kind of like prissy and scientific about it. I mean, if you if you actually want, if you think it's a good idea to redesign the search function, because you've 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 gathered evidence which makes you, which which you know supports hypotheses that you've got that it is probably mm. a good idea. Frame it in a way that's going to get this done. Then you're going to get more but that data. That sounds silly. I mean, if you no, think it it's a good idea. 
No, no, no. I said, yeah. I said, think it's a good idea based on kind of you know hypotheses that you've tested. Yeah, and so okay. on. you've got you've gathered data, yeah. and to you, the hypothesis has been proved. Then you mm. present it in a way that's going to get it to be redone, so that you get more data. You get a, you get a changed website, a changed app, or whatever it is. So mm. then you can like look at more data and go, or do more interviews, mm. and say, okay, now it actually is better. So you, you've you've ironed out the cognitive biases by by by. By iterating. Stuff. By iterating. By iterating. Yeah. By doing stuff and, and testing more mm. or le- looking at more data and learning. Because you can't get rid of them. They're always going to be there. You can't, of course you can't get rid of them, but you can be more aware of them by calling them out and thinking about them and reasoning about them more. I'm, mm. I'm quite confident about that. But, but the mm. people that you're presenting it to, they're not going to have that kind of presence of mind that you've built up if it is possible to do it that way. So when they, when they see it, they're going to put their own cognitive biases on your framing no matter how carefully you've done it. Or unless you obviously show them the different ways of framing it. Well, the problem is, of course, oh, but then, you, there's but then not the, meeting, a, there's then not then the whole d- thing turns into, yeah. into being a lesson on, on framing instead there's of not enough data in, in this, in, not enough data in this example to actually show that. <coughs> what, what I think... Well, I think it's good that you're aware. I think, it's yeah. co- of course, you've got to be aware that the way you frame stuff imp- influences people's decisions. Um, but I, I think perhaps you shouldn't avoid it, you should actually just run with it. The, the problem, of course, or the risk here that, that I've uh, touched upon now is that uh, you can always frame it in a way so that it, ma- it makes your uh, result look better. Uh, so you can actually, in that way, control how people feel about what, what your work is, which, which is a bad way of doing it, an unethical way of doing it, of course. But, and I think a lot of people actually do this, and yes, perhaps no, they're not even aware they're doing it. But it depends on your organization. <laughs> if, if yeah. you know your organization is actually quite, it's quite difficult to get buy-in for certain things. And maybe you've been struggling to get this search. You, you've been seeing bits of evidence for a long time that this search function needs to be changed. Maybe this is exactly the thing that you want to kind of put it out there and frame it in the way of like, um, you know, 16 out of 20 users, um, or was it four out of 20 users um, um, didn't find the search function. I mean, you present it in that way because this is just the tip of the iceberg. You know a lot more stuff, but doing it that, showing it that way ah. to that, you know, those inf- those um, mm. stakeholders means that they're going to go, yes, include it in the next sprint. Job done. It's not Ooh. about whether you're. It's not about whether mm. it's kind of ethically right or wrong. It's about things getting things done. But yeah, that makes me kind of scared because that makes me think that I'm manipulating people, which I, which I'm you are. Kind, I'm ag- which you are, which I'm against, and I'm 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 not. You, I, I wouldn't feel confident or comfortable doing that. But everything we do is manipulating people. Exactly, and that's what I don't feel comfortable doing anymore. <laughs> are you going to retire? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it, it's an ethical standpoint. You need to think more about the outcome. You need to think more about... So if they, if they, if they at a later point, find out that you have manipulated them, uh, they, you may have a bigger problem in the future uh, talking to those people. Possibly, but God mm. damn, if that search now is really easy to find and really good, they're not going to care because you did a good job. The search is never done. It's always something that you have to work yeah, yeah, on but, but you see what I'm getting at, though. That, I mean, if you've, uh, as long as you've moved yeah. forward, as long as you move forward and you've got something done, then and yes, it's better. in a small and team. But if you're presenting it to a client in the way that you say and trying to manipulate the client, as would be in our case as consultants, <laughs> we're spending too long on this article. We this, are, we but, are, this, we are. but this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> We, I think that we're just, we are getting to the, we're agreeing on the fact that yeah. cognitive biases are there and, they're, and they need to be mm. dealt with, or at least to be, yeah, they need to be dealt mm. with. Um, but I, I'm, but I, I don't li- think but it's I like your solution. I like your solution, though, that working iteratively is the solution and working like trying to find a new way of disproving or, or proving what you just found out in the first test, in the next test. Uh, mm. That's the way forward. Absolutely. <laughs> 
So, um, Article 2 today is um, Agile Doesn't Have a Brain. Um, this is um, an article written by um, Jeff Gothelf, yep. um, which is on Medium or Hacker Moon. Um, and, um, well, basically, what Jeff's um, doing here, he's, um, he's kind of calling out the whole Agile process. He is, actually, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know he's saying, yeah, we've we've, we've created the Agile Manifesto 2001, and it's changed the way that teams approach software development. And um, you know, 15 years later, Agile's become the de facto way that most companies work. Mm. And and me and you, you know, we know that everything yeah. we do nowadays, it's 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 almost like a requ- Well, in many cases, it's a requirement of, a, of 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 coming on board somewhere. Is that you've worked with Agile or you mm. work Agile, you you will do it in an Agile or iterative way. Um, and um, what Jeff says here is that the, the reason that they, these organizations are choosing to work um, in an agile way has changed dramatically during these 15 years. So instead of looking for better ways to, to uh, meet business needs, they're, they're actually really after now a faster way of meeting their business needs. And I, I, I recognize this for some of the things I work with. It's, um, you know, rather than being better, it's kind of like, shit, we've got to do all of these things for this product release. How mm-hmm. do we get it done quicker? Exactly. Um, so, so Jeff says we've we've traded we've traded results for velocity. So the teams are encouraged to ship as much as they possibly can, mm. um, but we're letting go quite a lot about whether that's good. St- well, whether whether it's actually achieving what we wanted and adding customer value mm. with these things that we're now producing at high velocity in our uh, sprints and agile exactly. um, teams. Um, and, so and, I, uh, and the tools we use, I know that in Yida, they actually have, they have this burn down and you look at the burn down mm-hmm. and you look, okay, so how many stories can we complete in one sprint? And that sort of becomes your measurement of how successful the sprint is, which of course is completely wrong because you need to start <laughs> looking at, is it successful based on what we're trying to achieve with the product or service we're actually building? And yeah. for that, you need other things to measure and you need to be act- actively looking at user needs and business needs and, and, and checking with users whether or not what you actually built was something that was of use to them. Yeah, and, um, and Jeff goes on to say, um, th- you know, because it's a, it's a, it doesn't have a brain, it's a dumb process, mm. um, that the feedback loops um, originally were intended to inform the next steps. Um, as in, you're planning, you're, you're looking at your backlog, you're planning mm. your next sprint based on feedback from from those deliverables, yeah. earlier deliverables, uh, or, or results from sprints. Mm. Um, but these f- feedback things now have instead become checkpoints to ensure we've completed what we agreed to two weeks earlier. Exactly. So so mm. now it's kind of like, well, did did we... Was was our velocity rate mm. correct? Did we did we include too much in the sprint or too you know? Did we get it right? Yeah. So so yeah, we got the sprint right. Mm. Excellent. Now we can do the next sprint. Mm. Oh, so 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 a lot of the focus, and I see this as well in projects I'm in that a lot of the focus is about making sure you plan the sprint well, mm. that we don't we don't burden the the development team too much that they've they've not got too much to do because then they get stressed and it doesn't get mm. work. so so all the focus is about been correct in the planning exactly what they've actually achieved at the end of it it's yeah i can see what jeff means here it's it's really not always the focus no i, I completely agree and i see this a lot and, and in my experience and i've mentioned this to you before james is when you have a really strong product owner who is aware of exactly this who doesn't worry about what gets done in the sprint but what gets delivered 
if what gets delivered to the user is of value to the user. Uh, when you have a product owner who reasons like that, then you have a team who works uh, with the right intent. And when, I've re when we've actually, in my case, we've lost a product uh, owner that had that frame of mind, everything went to shit. Exactly what Jeff is saying here, we're actually measuring the wrong things. We're looking at, can we get these 20 stories done in the sprint? Uh, and a success if we do, which is just completely missing the point of <laughs> mm. of building something. Mm. But at the same time, I can understand. You know, some some developers. Mm. I mean, that is what they that is what they want to do. They want to tick off all their mm. items in their backlog, and that makes them feel good. They're they're not always interested in testing, right. interviewing, getting a prototype out there. That that is product management, or it's even even you know UX or research that we've got to take care mm. of. That so true. But also, I have to say then that the product product owner I've worked with before that I'm always so amazed by is uh, that person has actually brought users or users uh, like real user stories from the real world out there about what we've built and how people have been using it in real life and how it's mm. uh, it's made a difference and bringing those stories back to the team and to the developers always helps them understand, oh my God, I'm making this happen and it's, it's make, having an impact out there in the real world. And that mm -hmm. helps them think about not maybe just this, the, the specific stories, but actually, okay, so what will the outcome of my work be in the end? Mm. I think, um, I mean, at the end of the article, um, Jeff has, um, what, six points of ways that um, you can... Oh, you can change focus back to customer value. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to summarize them by being by just saying it feels like we need to have Oh, you've you've got to have the 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 user research or, or you know feedback. You've got to test with people, or you've got to go out there and talk to people, uh, and that has to be in every single sprint. Um, you can't skip it, or you've or you've cut off the feedback loop, and it just becomes a, a longer sprint, effectively. Or sprint split it's split up into two, um, and 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 I, I see it as well too often when you've got, um, especially when you're working with maybe. Um, a platform or a, 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 an enterprise product when maybe it's not something that's getting pushed out every week or so every sprint there is a tendency to, to delay with um with with feedback from real users because you know it's complicated <laughs> it's complicated to get, it's complicated to get access to them and getting to to, to, to look at it so it, be, it becomes a, a bit of a waterfall process um but but that's that's got to be the way we've we've we get the reconnection is by forcing some contact or with data or with the users um, so you can see some, or, or even like you said, I think it was an excellent point there with a product manager who is um, actually um, bringing in um, stories from the real world um, to, to give some feedback on their, um, on their, on their, on what they've created. And it shouldn't have to be that complicated bringing in users and user opinions and user feedback. We have the internet now. We have access to people in a way that we have never had before. We should be spending time to actually get access to users and have them take part in demos. And that's why we have demos to actually demonstrate we, that's, this is what we built. Is it mm. useful? So the complete guide to measuring lossness. Uh, this is an article uh, written by um, Toma Sharon. Um, and we actually, we actually got uh, we went out and asked for people to to give us links that we think they should talk about, and um, this was this was actually sent in by uh, WeWork, um, which is the company that um, Toma is head of UX for. And so, so we, we kind of kind of suspect that it's we uh, think Tomer it's himself. we yeah <laughs> we think it's Toma himself that's 
tipped us off about his own article to talk about it. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting article. What if, what the complete guide to measuring lostness is about? It's um, it's about the lostness metric, um, which is a um, a measure of efficiency um, of using a digital product or service. Uh, Thomas says here, it's, it's how it shows you how lost people are when using your product, and a lostness score ranges from zero to one. Uh, a score closer to one means that people are very lost and having trouble finding what they need. A, a low score, closer to zero, means that people um, find what they want relatively easy. Now, what Thomas says here is that a lostness score of 0.4 and upwards, um, it's clear that a person's lost. So you notice that when you sat as a researcher by the side of them doing this usability test, it will it correlates, is what he says, that you know, 0.4 and upwards, you, it's the right feeling. Um, now, um, the formula for this um, is is basically um, derived from the number of pages pages visited um, while performing a task um, and the total number of pages, um, sorry, the, the number of pa- different pages visited during a task and the total number of pages um, visited during the task. And then the minimum number of pages or optimum number of pages that must be visited to complete the task. Right, the, the number of pages you assume would be the best path for that user to complete the task. Um, actually, fastest path because it's the minimum here. So, so ah, okay. So the minimum, so R is okay. R is the minimum or optimum, mm-hmm. but it's it's basically it's a it's a bottom it's a it's the minimum number. It's the lower end of how many can you do this in, um, and then there's the the total number and then the number of different pages, and that mm-hmm. gives you a, a this square this squares here and there and square root, so you get a figure. So uh, the benefit of using this then would be, as he explains at the beginning of the article, that people don't have time to get lost on your website because they have other stuff to do. So you want them to find what, they're do, what they want as soon as possible or do what they want as, soon as, po- as fast as possible and then get out. And so you don't want them to get lost. Yeah, well, the, the principle, mm. the, the th- thinking mm. here is that um, the, more, the more varied number of pages, if you know it takes roughly seven pages to do ta- this mm. task, then the more pages you've looked at, probably means the more wandering around you've done and the more you've kind of not really been able to find the right place and it's been mm. confusing and you've been you felt confused and felt disorientated and not mm. been a happy camper at the end of the of, of the session um okay so i i i um i like i like this idea i think it's a i think it's a, as a metric it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to look at and to, to measure but those variables you just mentioned, how you would track them in a usability test, uh, and you'd actually have to sit with a, a piece of paper and check off. Th- they visited one page, two pages, three pages, and and then factor that into the formula, I guess. Yeah, um, there's a spreadsheet that um, mm-hmm. um, basically there's a spreadsheet that he offers to um, to, to help with this. Um, and I think mm-hmm. you, yeah, you'd probably sit there doing, um, you know, Roman numerals kind of or bar ah. uh, gates, um, I guess. Exactly. But I see what um, he says now. It's actually if you're doing it during a usability test, then he really strongly recommends recording the session. Exactly. So you can do this afterwards. Yeah. Because so there's no, sit, yeah. There's no way you can sit there and remember. Yeah. Okay. Now he's on. Now she's on that page. Okay. Yeah. Was she on that page a minute ago? Or was that a different page? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, it's going to be very difficult to do it live by the side of it, so by, the, by the side of someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, looking back at the replay will give you a, a, a good idea. Um, so so yeah, so measuring lostness and that it's a bad thing to be lost is the mm-hmm. premise of this, and it's a good thing to be less lost. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I I like it, um, but I'm a bit this this things that are kind of making me a bit bit hesitant about it 
Um, mm. uh, first of all, I kind of I, I straight away started thinking about the software usability scale, the SUS, um, yeah. um, which was created in the what is it eighties by um, John Brook. Um, and, and that's been developed over quite a long period of time, and it's been it's been um, they've been gathering evidence to back up the software usability scale over a long period. So there's been like you know hundreds and hundreds of of, um, um, of studies using the software usability scale, um, which is I actually use that quite a lot because I, it allows me to have a number to accom uh, yes. yeah co yeah I use <laughs> accompany my my usability report because people like numbers yeah and yeah. and uh, it's it's also um, it's good to use because you don't need to worry so much about sample size with SUS. And this is mm. what made me worried a little bit about the, the, um, uh, the lossness um, mm. metric, is that um, with, with, with SUS, what they've done is they've, they've done so much re research over the years, they've come to a figure of like 68. Um, mm. And then they've shown that over time, that is a reliable figure. That, above that, it's a good system. Below that, it's a bad system. And, and they've, mm. they've seen that again and again and again. So even if you've got one person and one person gets a, a SUS mm. that's above 68, then it's a pretty, it's, it's pretty reliable indicator that it is a, a, you know, the system is bad <laughs> or there's, prob yeah. there's problems with the system. Um, whereas with Thomas' thing here, I mean, I... Uh, we've 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 lacking the empirical uh, things to back this up. I, I don't really know where he's got the. Maybe it says more in his book, but I, I don't really know where the 0.4s come from. Um, mm. Is it just anecdotal because he's sat by the side of some people and it does get the right feeling, so that's roughly right, uh, which is fair enough. I mean, if it's the beginning of the life of this um, of this metric, then mm. yeah, you've got to start somewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to to in the future maybe seeing some more. Um, Empirical evidence that, that that says, okay, we've now done this um, two hundred times, um, and we've seen that it's you know that it that it seems to be true, so we can rely yeah. on it um, and can use it in a similar way to um, to the software usability right. scale. So you'd be aware of, how, I mean, how do you get to a confidence level of ninety five percent, and and what what uh, interval would that be? What confidence interval would that be uh, if you have a ninety five ninety five percent confidence level? I don't really know with this tool. Uh, because I don't know what sample size I'd need to get to that confidence level. Oh, that's, as I said, that's what's the advantage with SUS, is that you yeah. don't need a sample size because they've, they've proved to be reliable over 25 yeah. years. Uh, whereas here, we, don't, we would need a sample size, <clears throat> and you're going to need a lot of people to, 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 get, the, um, you know, to get that down to 90, within the 95% percent, uh, mm. percentile. Um, you're going to need hundreds, mm. probably. Um, so so it, just gives, it gives an indication. Um, but... Um, but I'm not sure if he gives you an indication because he says he also says you shouldn't use web analytics or you know, analytics mm. data uh, because you don't know the intent. You don't know how people are actually mm. why they're doing things. Um, but at the same time, when you've got such a, a small sample size, you, if you repeat it, you're going to get another sample and different people, and uh, you can't comparing whether it's changed. It's, that's really mm. that's really getting onto to. You're on thin ice when you're comparing. You've you've tested like with five, ten people, and then you're changing something and testing with five, ten people again, and using this kind of mathematical figure to say has mm. it improved or not? No, it's it's going to be um, it's it's not going to be significant. 
Yeah, and then, then it would be like you would use it to influence or persuade people mm. to go your way if the number is what you want. Well, it could to be just pure wrong. Um, mm. So, so it needs to be there needs to be more. It needs to be made more reliable. Well, to, to and probably you'll you'll complement it with other sorts of data. So you'd use this data point to actually uh, see if the, it it, it uh, correlates with other data yeah. points that you have in the qualitative test that the usability test is. Yeah, I, I actually would I actually would disagree with Tomer on the sense that I think you could use this for um, analytics. Um, because you can you can actually um, infer intent from certain behavior on the website. For example, I mean, if you do have, I mean, we're getting very close to kind of conversions <laughs> here. If you do know that the task is to buy, I don't know, sign up for a for a newsletter, just mm. for that, right? There's a very specific goal page. You know that this is the the last page, mm. and then you can you can work out how many pages it is mm. to that point. You can mm. work out that the people that have people that have made have actually converted mm. then those ones you definitely know that their intent mm. was to to complete that so you can look backwards across their journey mm. and and say okay we know that it should take you six pages to sign up that's a ridiculously mm. large number but anyway uh, making examples upon the hoof here so um then you can run this this um lossness formula on the data and see okay how many people how many people did do it in six how many, how lost were they the ones that did convert yeah. so you can you can frame you can use things to frame it i mean you can maybe even use other data to say okay the people that came into the website on this page for over research we know that they're very likely that the people landing on that page were going to do this yeah so so you can you can make a little bit you can help it be more reliable or be a better indicator right exactly you could use, and you could use yeah it's like you're trying to disprove or prove your the hypothesis of the actual lostness number interval. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit well. like that. Yeah, I guess yeah. you could say that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because this is all about this is all about making it a little bit more solid, a little bit more reliable. Um mm. because it's it's not it's not scient it's on it's not scientifically accurate in itself because you're doing usability mm. interviews. So if you can use more data to make it better, then I think that's yeah. a good thing. And I would encourage people to do that and report their yeah. findings. Exactly. And I really like the idea of trying to track lostness with a number like this because, it, I mean, it's interesting if, because it makes it comparable to others. But I, I would like to say, like I usually do these days, that task completion is not the same as goal fulfillment, so it's important to track other data as well because you're not sure that the, the user is satisfied just because they've completed the task that you gave them in usability test because that's the task that you invented for them. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure that all users, perhaps, is, that's what they want to do. And also, like we've, we've mentioned several mm. times about persuasion, just because you've persuaded someone to do something using all these mm. lovely tricks of the trade doesn't, yeah. necessarily, necessarily feel that make they f doesn't necessarily mean they feel good once you've persuaded them to do it. Yeah, and perhaps you don't have their well-being uh, as the top priority. Uh, Sadly enough. Yeah. But that's another story. It is. Another <laughs> show. Yeah. So the, um, the three authors of the articles we've discussed on today's link show, um, just to recap that, um, is, or are, um, Catherine um, Whittington. And she's the um, digital strategy or a uh, digital strategy manager at Nielsen Norman Group. Um, Kay Whittington. Um, you're going to have to look at the show notes for this because we, we discuss whether it's Whitington or Whittington. But we'll, um, yeah, it's, mm. it's Kate Whitenton on Twitter. Jeff Gothelf is co-author of Lean UX. Um, and um, uh, a sense and respond together with Josh Sidon. Um, he's Jay Boogie on Twitter. And then the third article was by Toma Sharon. 
um, who is the author of Validating Product Ideas Through Lean User Research, and is T. Sharon on Twitter. Right. Thanks to all of those for writing such fantastic articles. Now, visit uxpodcast.com for the links we've talked about today if you can't reach them from your podcast client. And if you have enjoyed UX Podcast, then let a colleague or a friend know and encourage them to listen too. Also, remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side.